Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, Managing Editor of Velo News, joined by my tactically savvy co-host, Coach Trevor Connor. Today we're taking a deep dive into race strategy and tactics and the necessary skills and training you need to excel at racing. Today, it's flat races where the sprinter tends to win. This is the first of a two-part series, but if you're not a sprinter, don't stop listening. We'll share plenty of great advice and clever tactics that will up the level of anyone's racing. In the next episode, we'll dive into races where the road goes up and also stage racing. Again, if you're happier on a 12% climb, today we'll still address how you can be successful in the flat race. First, we'll discuss some of the differences between professional and amateur racing and why that leads to different approaches. We'll take a deep dive into crit racing, why skills are so important, how to save energy, and how to get comfortable with the speed and fear of pack racing. Next, it will be flat road races, the importance of saving energy, how it's one of the most predictable races in cycling, but why you still need to be attentive to those unexpected moves. And finally, we'll talk about some of the dynamic tactics you'll encounter in these races, including sag climbing and breaking away. Today, we're joined by two veterans of both European and American racing from Rally Pro Cycling. Team manager Pat McCarty has spent much of his adult life racing as a junior U23 on the world tour in Europe, in the US, crits, climbing races on teams big and small. And one of Rally's team leaders, Evan Huffman, is known for his skills as a breakaway rider and time trialist. He's coming off a phenomenal 2017 season. Both of them are our guests. We caught Pat and Evan on the road while they were racing their spring campaign in Europe. Because of their schedules, we had to talk to them at separate times. Yet despite that fact, many of the same ideas and themes reappeared in each interview. It speaks to their knowledge and experience in elite racing. We also had a chance to catch up with Kiel Reinen, member of Trek Segafredo. Kiel has an interesting take on approaching different race types. Our fitness and strengths may determine how we approach a race, more than the route profile itself. We should also note that the training piece in this month's issue of Velo News Magazine is all about how to approach both flat and hilly races if you want a sneak peek of the second part of this podcast. So, click into your pedals, put it in the big ring, let's make you fast. So Chris, have you heard about Health IQ? I have, but I want to hear more. This is actually a pretty cool product. It is a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists and runners. So basically us. They are able to give us better rates for life insurance. And they have a special URL just for listeners of Fast Talk, which is www.healthiq.com slash Fast Talk, all one word. While you're there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava, or map my ride account, or basically any other way you can prove that you are out running, cycling, and living an active lifestyle, and you will get a better quote. What more could we ask for? First of all, it should be said that one strategy does not work for all races. Not all races are created equal. Maybe if you could open with some some thoughts about that and how uh, how different riders. Uh oh, we got the beer uh, is already coming out. <laughs> popping beer yeah. bottle. It's about that time. We haven't even hit you with the hard questions yet. What are you popping out then? Yeah. <laughs> 
good question. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, where are you right now? Where where are you guys staying? Uh, Calpe, Spain. Okay. So we're kind of in between races. We finished up the Valencia race on Sunday, and we've been here since. We're going to head out tomorrow. Start heading a little bit further south. Two one-day races this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And then we start the Ruta del Sol on what, next Wednesday, and that's a five-day stage race. Right. Fantastic. Great. So, yeah, right there we have uh, different types of racing, different types of races. Mm-hmm. And could maybe open with some comments about how different racers match up with different race types. Well, yeah, exactly. That's kind of part of the, part of the project that directors and teams collaborate on, and they discuss starting as early as October, November before a season is is what the race schedule is and not only just what races you're doing but what do they look like in the next year you know sometimes races change so for example i think almaria the race we're doing on sunday is one of the races that's like this but there used to be uh race luis puig in um spain that was raced one direction one year and another direction the other year so the next year so it would switch every year and, and it featured a pretty big mountain pass on one end of the course. So of course one year it would be a total sprint finish and then the next year it would essentially finish on a mountain. It's one of those things you got to know your race as a director. You got to either have done the race in the past or got to be good with Google Maps and understanding what <laughs> a race course looks like. So you understand your races from, from pretty far out. You understand your target events from pretty far out. That is, you know, what are your sponsors interested in? And then you also understand what kind of riders you have, who rides well at certain races, what time of year some guys come good, what kind of prep they need specifically to be at their best. There's a pretty pretty fluid calculus that goes along with the decision making there. I mean, you know, sometimes you got to change course a little bit with some guys. Some guys are going up, some guys are going down, some guys are doing kind of exactly what you think they should be doing. But yeah, yeah. So all this goes into the decisions. It's hard to say. It's more of a, it really is a director. You just have to have a lot of experience for this stuff because it's, you know, it's hard to say there's a real scientific method to all of this. A lot of it's just experience, knowledge, and a gut feeling and and what you think is going to be the best way to point everybody. And then you keep your fingers crossed. Is there kind of a one size fit all? Is there a rider who can be good at all types of races or do different types of races require different assets? And and do you have to some degree pick and choose? Uh, I think cycling requires a lot of specialization. That's why you see a pretty wide range of body types that are successful pros compared to other sports, maybe. I mean, you just look at the guys that are the best sprinters in the world are not the best climbers in the world and vice versa. And there are obviously some guys that are more well-rounded and can do everything a little bit. But generally speaking, people kind of have their strengths and weaknesses. Is that something that you're, for lack of a better term, born with? Or how do you train some of those aspects of your physiology or your body type, generally speaking? Uh, I think it's a a mix. There's obviously a genetic component, but then obviously a lot you can train as well. I think you just have to figure it out through trial and error a little bit, especially as a junior, under 23 rider, trying to do a lot of different types of races, maybe even mix up what you focus on, maybe – yeah, one year you try to say, oh, I'm going to really try to do well at time trials this year. Then the next year I'm going to try to work on my climbing more. 
kind of see what you have better results at to find your your niche. I bet some of it's just a matter of looking in the mirror and saying, okay, I'm 200 pounds and I got a lot of muscle. I might not be the best climber or <laughs> saying, uh, you know, I'm 130 pounds soaking wet. Maybe, maybe I should be focusing on things that go up. Yeah, I think there, there definitely is a, uh, a genetic component to this or uh, you kind of fall uh-huh. into your types. That being said, in high school, I was a, I was a football player and on the line. Uh-huh. I was an offensive lineman, 220 pounds. And as a cyclist, I was more a climber. So it's actually quite dramatic how much you can change yourself. Well, you dramatically changed your your body type to t- today. You're what eighty pounds less than that. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. And I get so annoyed at the airports when they charge me for my bag being a little over fifty pounds because I'm like, I used to have more than that on yeah. my body. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, Evan, maybe you could walk us through briefly how you decided from your life experience and race experience how you came to decide what you were best at yeah like i guess i got into cycling later than some people at like 17 but i had done endurance sports for as long as i can remember and i would just always preferred the longer events more than sprints so i knew that that was something i preferred and ended up being better at I think that's part of it too is just like more than just what you're capable of or what you're good at is what do you enjoy doing and mm-hmm. what are what are you willing to work on is a big factor in some sense cycling kind of forces you to do everything because even if you're a climber or a sprinter you go to a stage race and you're gonna have to do a hill or do a you know finish a flat day so you kind of figure it out you're forced to in one sense and i just found that i'm tend to be better at time trials and kind of more rolling hilly stages than a bunch of sprints are being a pure climber. When you pick the calendar for each rider, are you sending hilly, uh, the, you know, your climbers to all the hilly races, your uh, sprinters to all the flat races, or does everybody get a, a pretty big calendar and you just say, you know, this isn't your type of race, so you're working for somebody else at this one, but they're going to be working for you at the, the one that's more suited to your strengths? I mean, it's a little bit of everything. So, for example, in terms of sprinters versus climbers, let's let's take our target, one of our target events, if not our main target event of the year, Tour of California. So we want to know what that course is. How many how many sprint stages are there? First of all, if it's if it's a really really hard addition and there's only one sprint stage, then we know that all the world tour teams coming over might not bring that many sprinters. So it could be an opportunity if we bring our best sprinter, there could be a chance. But you know, if that sprint stage doesn't come till after three or four big mountain days, then we're also at risk of, you know, our sprinter getting cut on time cut. So right. so to say that everybody matches up exactly to, to the style of race that suits them every weekend, definitely not. But we try to, you know, line our ducks up in as straight a row as we possibly can, you know, when it comes to, to the types of riders we have going well at the right times of the types of races that suit them. So sprinters might have to endure some tough stage races to get themselves into shape, and climbers might have to go to a flat race and ride on the front in, in support of a sprinter. So it, it can go both ways. But general, generally, we don't just, you know, we're not just going to send a bunch of climbers to the desert and the crosswinds and stuff like that. If, if there's an option for them to do something else, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Well, you also bring up a, a good point that there there's benefits to the riders to do things that, that aren't their strengths. I mean, you think about your climbers, mm-hmm. 
you look at a race like the Tour de France, they drive those first flat stages so hard to see if they can wear out the climbers. So if the climbers aren't spending time on the on the flats, uh, they're going to be in trouble. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it's uh, it's good for everybody to have a little bit of something extra in their wheelhouse that maybe they're not that that good at. I know at the end of the day, it's a professional sport. You know, these guys have a job to do. If we if we tell them they need to go to a race and ride for so and so, that's that's ultimately what they do. Evan, what do you think? In Europe, the fields are a lot deeper. Whereas, you know, for example, like we did the last stage of this race, Valenciana, and there was a 5K climb that topped out like 30K from the finish. And if we went that fast with like a NRC field, or I guess it's the PRT now, at like a domestic race, it would have been like a pretty small select group at the top, but here there's a hundred guys still. The sprinters can climb better. The climbers do a little better on the flat stuff just because you kind of have to, to create more opportunities for yourself. Yeah. I guess that when you get to like bigger and bigger races, you have to kind of change your perspective of what is a sprint day? What is a climber day? Uh, there's a little bit more overlap maybe. Does that also say something about the way the courses are designed to meet the the way that races in Europe unfold? I think so, yeah. I think generally the stages are longer and harder. Obviously, there are days that are not super long and that are completely dead flat. But yeah, sometimes if you look at a course at a race like you know Redlands or Tour de Gila, you go, oh, this is going to be a, a small bunch sprint or a pretty select group at the end. But then if we did that same route with a world tour Peloton, it, it's like, this is a bunch sprint. Like we're going to drop like <laughs> maybe 10 guys. <laughs> right. So I think that they do factor that into the courses here and they're generally more challenging. This episode of Fast Talk is all about how to race and train for a particular type of race. In this case, flatter races that tend to favor the sprinter. However, when I had a chance to ask Kiel Reinen, a veteran Pacific Northwesterner with Trek Segafredo, about how to race different styles of races, he flipped it on its head and made an interesting point that how we race may be determined more by our fitness than by the nature of the race. To answer your question about racing all races the same, I, I would actually say that you do. The difference is whatever is making up the bulk of your racing, that's what you train for. So, you know, these days I'm not doing any crits, but, but a couple years back, geez, I'm getting older, maybe it was more than a couple, but you know, I would do the spring season in Europe, come back, and maybe uh, I'd have a crit or two. And you know, those that type of racing is really different, especially after you you come back from some of those kind of classic style races in Europe. And I would find that it wasn't so much that I was racing it differently; it's that you you end up reacting differently in the race because of what you've been training. So, for example, if you've been training all winter long to have a strong spring in Europe. And then you come back to the U.S. and do crit. You don't have that same kind of punch that you you might if you had done a you know spring of just crit racing. But you have this incredible endurance that a lot of the other guys racing the crit might not. And so you can attack, and even though your attack isn't quite as powerful, you can do it over and over and over and over. And so you didn't consciously race the race differently necessarily. It just happened because that was the ability you had on that day. So I, I definitely noticed that a few times where 
you know, I would show up to a race and I would feel like I had a very different type of fitness than everyone else at the race. And it would result in me racing different tactically than everyone else, but not really on, on purpose. It wasn't like I sat down before the race and thought, yeah, you know, I'm going to have a lot more of this than everybody else. And I'm going to be lacking this. So I'm going to, you know, race with this in mind. If I was smart, I might've done that, but I think it just kind of happens naturally. So it's really go into the race, figuring out how can I use my strengths in this race? Yeah. Yeah. And I, at the end of the day, man, every race is so hard these days. It feels like you're, you know, practically flat out start to finish, but am I consciously holding more in reserve on a Vuelta stage than I am at the Bucks County crit? Not, not really. I mean, probably you do in certain ways, but it's more subconscious than it is conscious. And I think, you know, one of the most interesting things about bike racing is that you don't get to go in with a set of tactics and decide like you're, you're sort of, you're not really at the helm. You're, you're having to follow the race while others dictate what happens. Or if you're lucky, maybe you're dictating what happens, but you know, like on a day when you're feeling like crap in a stage race, maybe that's the day that, you know, AG2R decides to light it up on the first climb. You're not in control of that, that variable. So you have to, you have to go with the flow as best you can. So this is interesting because it sounds like it's almost tactics are kind of secondary to developing your assets, obviously beforehand, and then just responding to the race, trying to take advantage of what assets you have. Yeah. Yeah. Like for example, in the classics, if you're a leader versus a guy who got picked last minute, you, you've got two very different sort of physiological demands to meet going into the race in theory. And so the guy who they're going to use up from the start, you know, he needs to have a lot of zone two in the legs. He's got to be able to sit there in the wind at 300 watts for a few hours, making sure his leader's well and protected. Whereas that leader, he's going to save his bolts for the end. He's got to make sure he's got a really good one to five minute power in him so he can he can do that at the end of a long, hard day and still hit the peaks that, that he's seeing in training. So both individuals have gone into the race training very differently, I would say. So you're going to build the assets you, you're going to need. Right. But to both of them, the race is going to feel like it was hard all day because even though the leader is going easier in the beginning because he's sitting on the worker bee's wheel, you know, he hasn't been training that zone two. So the zone two maybe takes more out of him than it does for the worker. And, you know, whatever you've been training is what is going to feel good to you in that, that particular race. And if everyone does their job right, you should have, you know, emptied your tank in all the different zones by the end of the race. You know, you should have maxed out whatever you, whatever you brought to the, the day's event. Now that Kyle is throwing this podcast on its head, let's get back to talking about how to race flat courses. We're trying to find a good way to divide up the different types of races. Well, this isn't perfect. Making the first podcast about races where you're likely going to really need a sprint at the end. And the second podcast, we're going to talk about races where the, the sprint might be less important. So let's talk a little bit about your more flat road races and your crits. For, for this style of racing, what assets do you need? And of those assets, what can you train and what do you really need to be born with? I guess you need to be fast on a flat race. 
obviously on the flat there's no weight component so it's all about power and aerodynamics a little bit of course but it kind of doesn't matter if you're super super fit but if you're a tiny guy and you're not really putting out big power it's going to be hard to keep up when it's really fast on the flat road yeah so i guess i'm riding a lot on the flat training is good a lot of people are into motor pacing for flat races to get used to the speed i don't know if I'm not a huge fan of it, I guess, or I don't know if there's really a huge benefit. seems like if you can, like, push the power, you, you, you can push the power. It doesn't matter, like, how fast you're riding in training or how fast you're moving uh, in the peloton when you're in the draft. You're just going to go faster in a race than you are training. Yeah, my, my feel on the motor pacing <sighs> is it just teaches you to be more careful. I mean, when you're riding by yourself on the flats, you can ease up a little bit. You're not worried about constantly being in the draft where if you're sitting on a motorcycle and you ease up for a little bit or, or you take too much uh, wind, you're, you're off the motorcycle. So it's just teaching that yeah. always, always, you know, what you need in a race, which is always being on the wheel in front of you. And yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a part, a big part of the flatter races is like working on your efficiency, like staying out of the wind, being, trying to be more aerodynamic Whereas on a climb, you can kind of just do what you want to some extent. It, you can ride in the wind a little more because it's just a bit more about you're fighting gravity more than the wind or on the flat. If you can yeah, stay out of the wind, then you're going to use less energy than everybody. So at the end of the race, you're going to be fresher. To give uh, listeners a sense of your body type, what's your height and weight? I'm about 5'9 and 160 pounds okay. or 73 kilos. And I've definitely like gained weight kind of over the course of the last, I guess, kind of my whole career, but five years for sure. I just kind of slowly put on muscle mass, I think, which is wasn't really intentional, but that's just kind of the way my, my body's gone. I haven't done a ton of weights or anything to work on that. That's just kind of how, how it's going. So, has yeah. that has that been an advantage on the flat stages that we're talking about? And conversely, has that affected your ability to climb at all? Yeah, I, for sure. I think my weight's gone up and my power's gone up, kind of in line with that. And so I'm probably climbing more or less the same, but then I'm a lot stronger on the flats. And uh, I think overall, that's beneficial for sure maybe on the steepest climbs i struggle more than a lot of guys but kind of in the big scheme of things you spend a lot more time riding on the flats and then when you're on a shallower climb that you know say five percent where you can actually draft it's more to my advantage to have that extra power so when chris and i were doing some research on on climbing we found this study by a uh, uh dr padilla um from back in 1999 where he divided riders into four types. He had flatlanders, all-arounders, time trialers, and climbers. And one of the things that was really interesting out of the study, or two of the things that were really interesting, is one, they showed that power and weight tend to scale somewhat equally to a degree. I mean, once you get up around 200 pounds, your, your power to weight's going to plummet. But actually, your, your little climbers don't have that much of an advantage in terms of power or weight. It's just a, a slight advantage. But when you're on the flats, it's much more about absolute power and your aerodynamics. And they showed that 
little riders really don't have any sort of aerodynamic or very little aerodynamic advantage over bigger riders. But the bigger riders have much better absolute power. So on a really steep, hilly course, the little guys might have an advantage. But for the most part, if you're trying to be good at at the the biggest variety of, of racing, being smaller might not be better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think my my uh, weight to like wind drag, I guess, is very good. <laughs> I guess if you looked at like a cross section of the peloton that are my same weight, they're probably almost all taller than me. And so on a climb, it doesn't. It's the same, but then when you're on the flat, I'm that much more aerodynamic. So that plays a pretty big advantage, and that's part of why I'm so strong in breakaways and in time trials is I'm doing the same power, but I am going faster than guys that are taller than me, but the same weight. Yeah. Their frontal area ends up being larger than yours. And so you're more compact. Yeah. My uh, teammates are always quick to remind me that the worst spot in the team time trial is behind me because there's less draft. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you love crits or hate crits, Evan, but um, I'm sure you've raced a lot of them because you're an American. How do you get good at crits? Yeah, I think with crits compared to a flat road race, the positioning is more important, but also just experience of, I guess, like reading the flow of the race or the peloton. With all the corners, I mean, in general, you're doing a lot more turning in a crit than a road race. And if you do it wrong, you spend a lot of time reaccelerating out of corners. And if you do it right, then you don't. And it might not seem like a big difference because you're you know, still on the wheels, you're still drafting. But if you can really limit the amount you're pedaling hard out of corners, that adds up and makes a huge difference. And you see the guys that are really good crit racers – just save a lot of energy doing that, just being smart with where they're at and how they're carrying speed through the turns. So how do you do that? And I have noticed that like when I was doing NRC crits, I knew I was crit racing well when I rarely had to, to stand up where you could just kind of flow through the corners and just keep pedaling. Uh, what are what are your suggestions for, for getting that skill going through the corners? I guess just practicing, doing a lot of racing, and always being aware of it and just thinking how much am I breaking? Yeah. How hard am I pedaling out of the corners? You know, it's one thing if it's single file and everybody's doing it, but if you're kind of looking around and like, you know, this person looks like they're going faster through the turn than me. Like maybe I need to figure out how they're doing that. Like I need to follow them around things, things like that. I think just always being aware and working on it. I think there's a a level of, of trust in um, crits or, confidence in your skills but also confidence in the the skills of the riders around you that you don't get in every type of race and it can probably be nerve-wracking for a lot of people when they first start doing it like you said small steps as you get more experience and more practice doing it is is really something that can't be replaced you can go out and practice your cornering speeds um, by yourself repeated take the same quarter and go a little faster each time but then you throw a hundred riders in front of you or around you and it becomes a different ball game and that that level of comfort that you need can only come from from doing these races in my opinion that's a good point too sometimes it's more about being in a good spot than just being at the front knowing who are the riders that 
are good at carrying speed through the corners and being behind those guys and not being stuck behind people that are jamming up the brakes can make a bigger difference than simply being closer to the front of the field. In terms of jamming on the brakes, one of the things that I notice with more amateur crit riders that, that can make a huge difference is they try to come into the corners really hot, but then slam on their brakes in the corners, which is, is the worst thing in the world to do. Because if you do that, uh, you're going to have a 20-foot gap between you and the rider in front of you coming out of the corner. So the, the biggest recommendation I give to people is, if you need to brake, do all your braking before you hit the corner. And then whatever speed you have, even if you're going a little hot, you just carry that speed through the corner and accelerate out. Yeah, I think that's good, good advice. And I think, it, I think it also, um, the more you do crit racing, the more you'll get comfortable and be able to then pick out places on the course coming into a corner where maybe the rhythm of the race gets consistent and you'll say, okay, this is where we'll start braking. This is where we'll let off the brakes. This is where we'll start to accelerate and you'll get, it'll become, you'll fall into a flow a lot more. Whereas, you know, the, the, the lower the, f the category field, the more inconsistent the speed will be, the jerkier, the accelerations and decelerations will be. You get into the higher level racers and everything starts to smooth out a little bit more. So it sounds like we're all yeah. saying that crit racing is, uh, to be a good crit racer, it's, it's almost more about skills than it is about strength. Uh, yeah, I guess compared to other types of racing, yeah. But strength is also important. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, if you're the strongest guy in the race, you have a pretty good chance of winning too. <laughs> so you got to have both. But the, the skills helps compensate for sure. Yeah, I think that's a good word there is compensate. If you're not the strongest rider, but you're really smooth and you play it right and you stay out of the wind and you save yourself, then you give yourself a much better shot and in a crit. Pat, what do you think? Well, you got to be able to handle your bike. I, I actually got really good at riding crits as a climber. Kind of compare it to merging onto the highway with, with a crappy old car with a four cylinder engine in it. You got to be able to time things right. <laughs> you got to know how to maximize a little, little bit of juice that you have as a sprinter. I think crits are a lot easier to position yourself because you just have, have that more instantaneous power coming out of corners and things like that. So be, being a certain type of rider certainly helps in criteriums. I think as a general rule of thumb, you need to be able to handle your bike i think if you're timid and scared of corners you're you're just hurting yourself every every inch of the race so if you can improve improve on that and that that just means you know watching the good riders watching how they ride a crit for myself there's always kind of like a sweet spot of effort where if you go above that effort then your skill level tends to drop but if you can manage to keep yourself calm and collected you know, try to keep your heart rate as low as you can. You generally tend to make better decisions and can be a little bit sharper. And so I think at the amateur level, it's important for guys to focus on their effort and actually minimizing their effort as opposed to maximizing their effort in crits. I think if you can minimize your effort, you're actually going to end up being able to make better bike handling decisions, better skill choices, better decisions overall. And it's almost counterintuitive. Sometimes you think you need to pedal harder to get yourself in the right position, but you get to a certain point where your heart rate goes up and then it just, you just never come back down. So I think in crits for me, that was always something I focused on was, was actually minimum getting to a place where I was not riding hard 
and then picking my way towards moving up in a way like I would practice, you know, in a local crit, I go to the very back, the last wheel and I would move all the way to the front without going over 400 Watts. You know, I'd watch my power meter and not go over 400 Watts, but I would move up and I would do that by not breaking, by timing things. You know what I mean? Like, yep. yeah, I like, um, I like your analogy. You know, there's, I like your analogy to the uh, beat up uh, four cylinder car trying to right. merge into fast moving traffic. And it's, a, it's about letting your momentum carry you through the corners. It's not so much about how much power you have, but your skill and breaking less and a little bit of positioning and, and um, having the eye for where to get up into a, a space that might open up and things like that. So just to, to throw one story in to tell people how important that those skills for going around corners and the positioning are. Um, I remember one year when I was at Northstar, we were in that first crit, which is a pretty technical crit. I started near the front and I looked at my power files afterwards. So this is all actual numbers. For the first 20 minutes of the race, I was averaging about 270, 280 watts. Then there was a crash. I got caught behind the crash. It was right by the start finish line and I was dumb enough not to put a foot down. So I had to chase and got onto the back of the field where you had a whole bunch of riders who didn't know how to go through the corners well that were breaking in the wrong spots. I was stuck in them and this is a hard crit to move up in. For the 20, 30 minutes I was on the back of the field, I was averaging 380 watts. So it was a 100 watt difference. Yeah, I've been there. I can see that for sure. (laughs) It seems like half a crit riding is being able to be near the front without constantly putting out 400 watts and killing yourself. So what are some of your tricks for being able to do that? And as you said, keep that heart rate down, which I, I love that description. Lay breaking. Get good at lay breaking. That is waiting to the absolute last possible moment and using the least amount of brakes that you possibly can. I mean, it seems like oversimplifying it, but if you break, you slow down and you're not going as fast anymore. But it, it works. That's a skill you can work on, practice. Like I said, with that, if you got a four banger engine, then you know <laughs> why you were trying to brake a whole bunch. So um, that was one thing I did a lot was not using my brakes coming into corners. Maybe wait a second, see if there's a little hole or a gap that I could use my coasting and speed to sort of buffer myself, uh, uh, move up but not slow down. It's just things like that. It's it's really just a skill. I mean, crit racing is a skill. You can either be really really fast and strong, or you can be skillful. So. If you're not really, really fast and strong, then then work on your skills. Uh, late braking, being good at cornering. And we know that if you let a gap open, if you find yourself working really, really hard to come out of the corners or, or you know, w- whatever it is in certain times of the crit, then just get better about not working as hard. Uh, road racing, it's all about finding the right moment to unleash your watts, whereas for me, crit racing is almost more of a game, like, you know, how how little energy can you use to do the same thing and just sit in the field, right? Uh, right. do the same thing as everybody else until, until you find your right moment. When I upgraded to Cat 1, I wanted to learn how to handle crits better, so I, I, uh, I don't know if you call this lucky or uh, deluded, but uh, I tried getting for a few races right on Gord Frazier's wheel and watching what he did who is a monstrously big guy and considered one of the best crit riders ever. And he did that late breaking. Um, the thing that amazed me about him is we could be going through a corner at 50 kilometers an hour, leaned over, and if there was a rider in his way, he'd just reach one of those huge arms out and just simply move the rider out of his way and just keep going through yeah. the corner. So I had a real yeah. hard time staying yeah. on his wheel. 
Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I like think- I said, the, the tricks, you know, can progress. Uh, honestly, like I think a lot of where that stuff comes from, again, when I think, just think about it, if your heart rate's lower, you're doing less effort than the people around you, you're going to be able to handle the, those tricks. They're going to not seem as, as fast and crazy to you as it is if your heart rate's 30 beats lower. So some of those stronger riders that tend to ride around in the pack and it's not that big of a deal for them tend to kind of be the guys that can, can also push themselves to, to learn, learn skills at a faster rate and just be better bike handlers. For amateur racers, I think there's, because of their lack of experience at crits or maybe the speed and lack of comfort being in a pack that's moving around like that at speed, there's more of an element of fear to the riding. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any tips about overcoming that fear. Is it is it simply a matter of doing it more or are there other things that you can do to sort of minimize the fear and and, and is it following, following a wheel that you really trust? Mm, um, repetition. And, um, picking the right time to push yourself to, to learn, to learn lessons. I mean, if you don't push yourself, you're not going to learn anything. So you got to do races and you got to just be analytical about the process of getting better. You could just be out there and totally just be responding to fear all the time. You probably never learn anything, but if you take a moment and, and try to process what's happening, why you feel a certain way, focus on alleviating that maybe focus on your breathing calming yourself i mean because you, you if you want to get better you have to push yourself and you have to have the past thresholds where once before you know you couldn't do something or you were scared of something so it's yeah i mean it's an exercise in patience there's there's no there's no trick to being better at, at bike riding you just have to push yourself and learn how the bike responds learn how you respond and, and try to be better but if you're if you can't get past just just uh just being fearful and stressed out then then you're not going to get anywhere so i would start there trying to trying to figure out how to calm yourself in a race i would even say in a crit you, you have to be somewhat okay with being a little bit scared you're going high speed through corners surrounded by a bunch of other riders it's a scary situation and you just have instead of saying oh my god i'm scared and, and letting that get to you just say yeah it's a bit of a scary situation i'm going to feel a little fear and that's okay so Evan, give yeah. you a, give you a scenario here. Let's say you were still racing in the U.S. and your team manager just came up to you and said, uh, "I'm having you race the the entire crit series this year, and that's going to be your focus." What would you be doing in your training to prepare yourself for that, or would you be signing a contract with a different team? <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably might look for different teams, honestly, <laughs> for me, but. Yeah, hypothetically, I think I would do more short rides and more short efforts and sprints. Because, yeah, we talked a lot about being smooth and efficient, but sometimes if the race is really fast and the course is really technical, you are accelerating out of the corners no matter what you do, and you need to be physically prepared to do a lot of big accelerations like that and keep doing it over and over again. So that by the end of the race, you can actually keep doing that and sprint rather than just being super fatigued from the whole early part of the race. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Chris. When's the last time you took a run? Oh, wow. Actually, two weeks ago. Oh, not bad. Are you still sore? I yeah I am actually was I it, think I I think my fastest mile was like 11 minutes per mile oh my god that's not running actually and yeah 
uh, I think some walkers were giving me a good challenge. <laughs> what about swimmers in a pond next to the path you were running on? Were they passing you? Yeah, no, I avoided that. <laughs> okay. It's, it brings up the interesting topic of eccentric contractions of the muscles and so well let's not get into that that's another episode of fast talk what we're here today to talk about is health iq a very unique life insurance company that specializes in healthy active people like cyclists runners and triathletes they're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance and they have a special website just for fast talk listeners www.healthiq.com slash fast talk Head over there, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava account, your Map My Run account, any other way you can prove that you are an active, healthy individual, and they'll give you a better quote on life insurance. All at Health IQ. All right, so let's uh, let's move to the next type of race people will encounter, which is uh, the flat road race and go through sort of the same things. What do you need to do to be good at flat road races in terms of your preparation? I think you got to be ready for the, you know, especially compared to crits, just be ready for the distance. If you're going to be doing a four-hour road race and you haven't ridden four hours in a month, <laughs> you're probably going to have a hard time at the finish. <laughs> so working on the endurance for sure. And a lot of the same stuff applies just trying to save energy, stay out of the wind, be arrow. When you're in a flat road race, where do you where where would you tell people to sit? If obviously not everyone has a choice all the time, but where, what's the best place to be positioned? Um, the biggest factor in the flat race obviously is the wind, and if it's a really calm day or it, the wind is mostly head or tailwind, it maybe doesn't make a huge difference. You can kind of you're almost better off sometimes being more close to the back. You might get more draft than you would if you're sitting fifth to 10th wheel. But if there's wind and there's coming from the side at any angle, you're probably better off being as close to the front as possible or depending on your situation with your teammates. Yeah. It depends a lot on the wind for sure. And where you're at in the course, you know, maybe at the very beginning when it's super fast and the breakaway is still getting established you want to be closer to the front because there's more variables of what can happen maybe there isn't wind and then you come over a little rise or you turn a corner and all of a sudden there's like a crosswind and you're at the back because it was easy before and now all of a sudden it's hard and you're having to go around guys that are opening gaps it can be not so fun whereas you know once there's a breakaway out there maybe someone's riding steady on the front you can kind of relax and drift to the back and focus on eating and drinking and then as it gets closer to the finish you want to move back up again a lot of that stuff just comes with experience reading the race of how hard are the other teams or riders riding right now and kind of anticipating what's the race situation and how's it going to change and when and where but generally speaking you are better off closer to the front but not always and it can be uh, pretty mentally draining if you're fighting for position all day as well. That's something I tell people a lot is that staying in the top 10, even the top 15, it, you're fighting all day. Everybody wants to be up there. So guys are going to constantly be coming in, chopping you, getting in front of you, and you're going to have to keep passing them. So as much as it's nice to be up there, sometimes sitting 30th, 35th wheel, 
you're still close to the front, you're still in the game, but you're not fighting as hard for your position. Yeah, yeah. And some, a lot of times it's noticeable when it's kind of, you know, maybe the first five to ten riders are all single file and then it starts to kind of arrowhead out. If you're single file behind just on one guy's wheel, it's harder than when you're kind of in the center of a group and like surrounded, you're getting more draft. So you have to think about that as well. It might be, it's like, oh, well, if I'm up at the front, then I'm not fighting for position, but you're also not getting as much draft. So you kind of have to weigh that balance of what you want to do. <laughs> I actually remember uh, when I was managing a team, we, we went to Cascade. After one of the flat days, one of the riders on our team who was pretty new to, to this level of racing, he, he was showing everybody his files. He's like, look at this. I averaged 250 watts today. And he was all proud of how high a wattage he averaged. And I'm sitting there trying to explain to him, this was the flat day. That's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't brag about how high it yeah. is. You should be sitting in the yeah. field and, and trying to average as low a wattage as you can. Exactly. <laughs> Pat, what do you think? You know, in general, flat stages are, are the most – it depends. If there's no wind and it's a flat stage, we can say maybe this is the most predictable finish in cycling. If we see something a certain way, you know that the other teams are going to see something – see it the same way and they're going to bring their sprinters and there's going to be an expectation. And I think above any kind of style of stage, maybe excluding a mountaintop finish, the the flat, obvious sprint stage, I think it just sort of has – it carries a tone – even into the race when guys start to race, you know, when directors tell their guys what's going to happen that day, it all just sort of fits fits with what most the most likely outcome would be a sprint finish. So as a director, you know, you tell your guys if it goes crazy and it totally splits and 50 guys go up the road like, yeah, we better F and have somebody there <laughs> or we're going to be riding on the front. But generally, you try to be conservative and say, yeah, we're going to ride for the sprint, this and this and that. The same thing as a rider. I think the riders know the same thing. Normally, you know, the odds are it should be a sprint finish. And if you're a sprinter or you're riding for a sprinter, you know what's going to eventually happen. You're going to be banging bars at the front to try to do a lead out, get your guys in a position. But at the start of the race, anyways, you, what you're most concerned with is the thing going totally sideways and, you know, your team getting caught with their pants down and 20, 30 guys go up the road and you end up chasing. It's almost more of a damage control situation in those kinds of races than it is really starting with a clear strategy now is that do you think that also applies on the the local scene when we're talking about not a professional race a local scene no i would say on a local scene i would say it's less organized there's less of a chance that one two three or four teams are going to take responsibility to create the exact same scenario of a sprint finish that they all want you know even some of our guys as professionals if they went home to do a flat cat one race especially if it was a sprinter i think they could expect guys to do everything they can to not have a sprint or to not have a lot of organization and how it's written i would say the profiles generally carry a tone and matter more in professional racing than they do in amateur racing um not to say that there that has no bearing on how guys race in amateur level at the amateur level but i would say that the style and profile of race the expectation of what's going to happen in the race carries a lot more weight with a group of professionals that are there, you know, as, as a team um, than it does in an amateur field. I mean, at a professional race, if you get two or three strong teams on the front, they can ride 200 kilometers really fast and keep. You know, I've seen it before where a couple of strong teams can keep or even just one strong team 
can nullify every attack for one or two hours until guys get tired and only three or four guys manage to get away. And then it's, you know, then another few other teams help. Yeah. It's really hard to compare amateur racing to, to the level when you have a hundred, 150 guys that are all, you know, like NASCAR, like everybody's not, everybody's that far apart from each other. Sure. You have better riders than others and you see the race blow apart, but just guys making one or two attacks or being aggressive. Like I said, you, know, you get one or two strong teams that can almost completely nullify that in, in professional racing. It's not the same, not the same thing. Yeah, no, that's not something you see. I mean, you certainly see very strong organized teams at, at the amateur race level, but you, you don't see the same sort of three, four teams willing to get on the front and take complete control of the race. So it, it definitely is at the, the local scene a, a little more chaotic. Now, as a professional, you know, you have some advantages that our masters, racers, and, and non-professionals listeners out there, you have pretty detailed course maps and descriptions and a road book. Uh, you may have a team director in your ear telling you, you know, the, there's a turn here in um, a kilometer and a half, the wind's going to change directions, you know, get to the front, look for echelons, etc. But erasing all of that advantage that you might have still you have to be pretty attentive could you speak a little bit to that attentiveness that is these these days might take four or five hours but you still have to pay attention pretty much all the time yeah of course i think as far as like judging how attentive you need to be uh kind of knowing the other riders or observing the other riders is a big part of it if everybody in the field is content to just go easy right now, then it's going to be easy. But if, you know, you're in the middle of the field and you see eight guys from one team start moving up together, say, oh, it might, we might start to be going fast pretty soon here. They might try to pick up the pace on the front or they might be, they might have seen someone else do it. So they're getting ready. Uh, so you need to pay attention for sure, but you got to kind of also take advantage of those moments where you can relax. And yeah, I think just being aware of what, everyone else is doing is pretty key the worst thing in a, a flat race is at that those moments when nothing is going to happen nothing's going to get up the road to to waste a ton of energy because you're going to need that energy later in the race yeah yeah it starts to get into the tactics a little bit but you got to know when to conserve and when to use your energy because sometimes you're better off using energy you know say it is starting to be crosswindy it's like you could save energy and stay where you're at but Maybe you're better off moving up in the wind a little bit and then saving more energy later. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier crosswinds and being somebody who's coached a lot of people at the, the masters and the amateur level. Important thing to point out in the pro races, when they have a crosswind, you'll see multiple echelons form. When you know the person 20 or 21st wheel back has the confidence to get off of the front group and form the next echelon. That isn't what tends to happen in the Masters or the amateur race. And what you end up with is 10, 15 guys echeloning at the front and then 70 riders in the ditch hating life. <laughs> uh, so if you know there's going to be a crosswind on a stretch of the course, it's really important to get yourself up to that front and try to be in the group that's actually going to echelon. Yeah, and I think that's kind of to follow up on Evan's point. If you anticipate that that's going to happen – 
you might have to burn a match or two to get up to those first few positions, but you'll be so much better off there when it gets hard and when you're in the wind than if you're dangling off the back, um, fighting, as Trevor said, in the ditch for uh, 75th place. All right, here's another uh, scenario for you, Evan. You're on a circuit race and that circuit has a one-minute hill built into the, into the lap. How do you prepare for that? I think when there's a smaller hill in a predominantly flat race, it kind of comes back to what we talked about with the crits a little bit, uh, efficiency. Uh, I guess we got to talk about sag climbing. <laughs> if you start the, if it's a short hill, you can start the climb at the front of the group and then end the climb at the back of the group. And you essentially ridden the climb slower than everyone in the peloton, but mm-hmm. you're still in the group. And then you can just, coast back up to the front on the downhill Mm -hmm. it's a dangerous game because when you do that and then the field splits in half and you're in the back half then you're out of the race but a lot of the top sprinters know how to do that well and you can really save a lot of energy doing that just to be really clear you're saying position yourself up front right before this climb starts go at your pace allow a bunch of people to ride right past you and then time it so that you're cresting the hill essentially as you reach the back of the field. Effectively, you've climbed the climb maybe 20 seconds slower than everyone else. Exactly, yeah. Part of the reason we asked, this is a really popular style of racing domestically, especially um, at the non-pro level. And I, I have watched these races a lot where you'll, you'll see the whole field take it fairly easy on the flats, but as soon as they hit this hill, everybody's trying to do their their biggest one minute power ever, and yeah. it tends to be how they how they race them. Um, and really, the entire race is that climb. So you're saying actually you shouldn't be trying to do that your best one minute power. You should be trying to conserve and get over the top in a position where you're still in the race. Yeah, I guess it depends a little bit on exactly out of the course. If it finishes at the top of the hill, then you need to try to conserve and then just do your best one minute power the last lap to the top. Or if the finish is, you know, more at the bottom of the hill or after a longer section where the race, a lot of times you can just figure it out. The first couple laps, you'll just see like, Oh, the race is splitting apart, but then it regroups every time. And then you figure out like, Oh, I just need to just relax and not stress out about trying to ride the climb at the first 10 wheels or as hard as I can. You can save a lot of energy doing that. And then, at a lot of those races, there's kind of a point where it switches, where it stops coming back together, or the people who are dropped are too tired to chase back. And so that's why it's, like I said, it's kind of a dangerous game, the sag climbing. You need to know when that point is in the race where you can't be at the back anymore, or you can't be drifting back anymore. And it just depends on the type of rider you are. Like if you're a sprinter, you need to conserve energy. If you're the strongest climber in the race, maybe you do need to do your best one-minute power to try to drop the sprinters on the climb kind of depends what your objective is. Mm -hmm. If you want to sprint or if you want it to be selective. All right. So Evan, what do you do? What can a climber or a non-sprinter do when they're faced with one of these flat races that uh, they may not uh, have the strengths to really excel at? Uh, I think you have to, you have to be pretty smart with your efforts kind of knowing the tactics that are that might are most likely to play out so if you go oh there's this the strongest team in the race has the best sprinter in the race they're just going to ride all day to control it for a sprint 
that might be a different tactic compared to when you're in a race where you go, well, there's not really a lot of big sprinters here. A lot of the teams here like to just ride aggressive. Maybe I need to just, we need to just go all in for the breakaway today. That sometimes can be the biggest factor. Other than that, just looking for opportunities. If you know that there is going to be a crosswind section or you know that this climb on the circuit is maybe harder than people are expecting, or you know that you're stronger than they're expecting and you can get away with a small group with two laps to go, just trying to maximize your your effort in that way. Using the element of surprise sometimes too, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, the element of surprise is pretty big uh, on stages that, you know, whether it's completely flat or it has a small hill that is expected to be a sprint. I think a lot of sprinters and a lot of riders in general tend to like fall into that predictable thing of, oh, it's going to be a sprint today. So why try anything? And sometimes you can surprise people and they won't realize how far ahead you are or how strong you are until it's too late. But that does beg the question when you get in the breakaway, how do you do that besides trying to cover every move until you either get in it or blow up? Well, you pick, you pick the hardest moment on the course or you just have riders that are good at sensing sensing when it's about to the strings about to break if you can you can just follow every break that goes and eventually yeah one of them might stick but but not any not everybody can i would say not anybody can follow every breakaway so it's just a matter of you know professional racing sometimes to get into a breakaway you still have to have some of your stronger riders doing it because sometimes it's it's almost a half selection is to say it's not necessarily luck but the break happens on maybe a smaller climb at the beginning of the race where it's still actually really hard you have 50 guys that want to get into the break, but it happens on a climb, so only 10 guys are capable of doing it, and only five or six guys were there at the right time to actually do it, so you only have five or six guys in the break. It's almost more math. Math in the professional field than it is just trying or being there at the right time because you know they're professionals. They know how to be there at the right time, and of course they're going to try. It's their job. On a course that doesn't have that decisive feature, what – things should you be looking for to understand who might be getting ready to make an attack or go for a breakaway and how do you want to be positioning yourself to maybe go with it and decide that this is the one the i'd say at the amateur level it's almost more persistence i think if you're just persistent something's going to stick or knowing the two or three or four strong riders that are that are trying to get on the break in professional racing it's maybe Maybe the same, but you have, like I said, a whole entire group of guys that are being persistent and they're all quite strong. So some guys are better at it than other guys getting in the early break, sensing the moment, being patient, waiting until you can feel what's happening in the race in your legs and know that there's a pretty good chance that one of these next breaks is going to, groups is going to be it. Whereas they attack. There's just the, just the right combination of guys present and just the right amount of fatigue and everybody else that there's enough of a pause that a, gr- a group of guys get away. That's essentially how it works in, the, in professional racing. Well, you touched um, on, on a really good point earlier, and, and having done both professional racing and, and race the, the, the master scene, the one thing that I've noticed is different. Everybody talks about, well, you need to have the right mix in the, uh, the breakaway, and that's certainly at the pro level very important. Uh, you rarely see that breakaway get away without one of the where where one of the big teams isn't represented. Um, I actually find yep. at the the local level 
that's less true. It's much more everybody attacks and you get all sorts of breakaways that have the perfect mix in it. But other people back in the peloton aren't patient enough to say, let's let that go up the road. And, and, and they end up chasing it down. And the breakaway tends to happen more, you, what you were describing earlier, when the, the elastic or the string snaps, where the, the field actually gets tired enough that four, five, six really strong riders who aren't as tired as everybody else can simply power their, their way up the road. And when I see the breakaways succeed, it's usually the same mix of guys. And it's the guys that have that, that big horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. So similar question to what I asked you before, your team manager just came to you and with your calendar for the season and it looks like you're going to be doing a lot of flat races. Are you going to change anything about your training or more? What would you make sure you'd want to include in your training to, to prepare for a, a flatter season? Yeah, I guess just weight's not a big deal on the flat races is kind of the biggest thing. So just work on the power. <laughs> You do need the the long endurance efforts for sure, especially if you are a rider that is going to be riding on the front or being in a breakaway on flat races. You need to have that long power endurance, but at the end of the day, you might need to sprint too. <laughs> uh, so you got to still be ready to for some sprints. A lot of guys that aren't super strong sprinters naturally or don't like bunch sprints kind of neglect that. And a uh, thing to like keep in mind is that very few races are won solo. And there's a lot of guys that are really strong and fit and get into a lot of breakaways. And then the one time or, you know, the small percentage of times that the breakaway goes to the finish line, you're with, you know, four, five, six guys that are all better sprinters than you. And so you can't win anyways. So you got to be ready for those situations. But at the same time, not sacrificing that you know, long endurance to actually be in the breakaway and make the breakaway stick. So that's kind of what I've been working on a lot the last couple of years is trying to keep the overall fitness level and the endurance, but try to work on the sprinting a little bit. So that when you do come to the finish and breakaway, you can actually win. Maybe Trevor, this question is for you. The sprint is a working on that as a physiological component of your uh, repertoire is not just reserved for finishing off a race. What type of ability does that bring to your racing, generally speaking? So you're saying if you work on your sprint, does it have other things besides just helping you with the finish? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is going to work that top end. It's going to work those those fast twitch 2X fibers, which are still important in cycling and can actually be trained to work a little bit oxidatively, which surprisingly sprint work is going to help you with a bit. But hitting those fibers so that you can, you, you can draw them in the race is uh, important. So they're, they're needed for the, the sprint finish. They're going to be needed for the attacks, which... On flatter races, you're going to see a lot more attacking. You're going to have to cover a lot more moves, especially as you're, you're coming into the finish. There's tons of research on sprinting that shows that doing sprint intervals helps all sides of your training, including your endurance. I think that's a, a little overhyped because that was generally on couch potatoes, people that were untrained. And as I always said, if you take somebody who's untrained and you have them do anything, they're going to get fitter. Right. But there certainly is some evidence, even in trained individuals, that sprinting doesn't just help your sprint. It's going to help a lot of different aspects of your cycling. And since it does it through different pathways, 
it can be additive to the other work you're doing. So I think as, uh, overall you're going to become stronger if you add sprinting to your training. Excellent. All right, so Pat, you're on the clock. You've got one minute. How can I be faster at racing crits? Well, two or three take-homes. I think if, if there's a good bike rider out there in the local scene that you know is a good bike rider and he's better than everybody, pay attention to what he's doing because he's probably doing something right in the race. you got to learn how to push yourself, technical skills, training, working on making yourself relaxing yourself calming yourself in certain situations to make yourself better and um i would say the third thing is uh sometimes it's almost good not to take things seriously uh to just be more relaxed and have a good sense of humor about the situations that you're in you can kind of manipulate the situation and see it in a different way and maybe that'll push you to to, to learn uh to learn something new great great that was another episode of fast talk as always we love your feedback Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. We love both of those things. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Evan Huffman, Pat McCarty, Keel Reinen, and, of course, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>